From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm pop culture critic Peter Hartlob, here with Chronicle Deputy Managing Editor Kitty Morgan. Welcome, Kitty. Hi. Hi, Peter. How are you? I'm doing great. Great to have you. On T.C. Boyle Week on the Datebook Podcast, the World's End and the Road to Wellville author came here to the Chronicle. I was impressed. He was very friendly and no entourage for T.C. Boyle. That was great for me. I've been a fan for 30 years of Boyle's work, and here he showed up on his lonesome. He actually looked pretty tall, too. (laughs) I was impressed. Do you remember your first T.C. Boyle book? Yeah. um, Back in 1984, he published something called Budding Prospects. You could probably guess what that was about. Um, A young man comes to Mendocino County, grows marijuana. But what I really loved about the book was it captured a moment of um, California history and landscape. And, And Boyle's pretty funny, too. His new novel is Outside Looking In. It's Boyle's 17th novel and 28th book. And Timothy Leary's in this one? Timothy Leary is in his latest book. Um, It's Timothy Leary at Harvard University in 1962, 63, with a lot of psychology students, and they're doing a lot of drugs. Um, It's before LSD was illegal, so it was a part of an experimentation for the department. And as you might guess, it uh, it gets the characters into a lot of trouble with the faculty. Boyle speaks at length about Leary and his life in Montecito, too, threatened by earthquakes and especially wildfires in recent years. He talks a little about San Francisco. He's a fan and the relationship between drug addiction and writing. I think it's a great conversation. Datebook Podcast, thanks for listening. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Mr. T.C. Boyle, welcome to San Francisco. Well, thanks, Kitty. My joy to be here. Great. Now, I understand San Francisco might be one of your favorite places. Tell me about that. San Francisco is my favorite city <laughs> in America, and here's why. Um, I grew up in New York. I'd never been west of the Hudson River until um, I went to the IR Writers Workshop. Then, subsequently, I got a job at USC in L.A., and I got culture shock climate shock from L.A. And so the first several years I lived there as a professor, I would come here for several months. So I've lived in Bolinas. Mm. Um, uh, I've lived in several of the, the local areas around here, up, up uh, on the Russian River. Twice I was up there. And uh, most of my good boyhood friends all migrated here, too. So oh, really? it just feels like home. Ah. Well, speaking of your boyhood friends, um, you've often described yourself as growing up as a kind of a punk, kind of a guy with a chip on his shoulder. You still have that? I mean, now you I think you've had a big birthday back in December, so you turned... Uh, yeah, I'm 36 now. Okay, excellent. Yeah, it's tough. Um, I don't know. I grew up in a uh, mostly Jewish community in New York uh, near, uh, outside of Peekskill. And uh, 
very free-thinking, very left-leaning. I thought the whole world felt the same politics that we did. But one thing that our teachers emphasized was not to take anybody's word for it. Think for yourself. Be independent. And I've been very fortunate in my career to be able to do that. I never had a boss. No one ever told me what to do, and I've kind of figured it out on my own. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm very suspicious of anybody who says, uh, follow me. Give me, give yourself over to me, whether that's in religion or politics. And I'm a wise guy. <laughs> and if that qualifies as being a punk, well, I'll cop to that. Yeah, sure. Well, there's a lot of humor in your writing. That's mm -hmm. certainly something that um, a lot of your readers enjoy. Well, my friends, you know, they, it's self-selecting. You don't realize this when you're a kid. Self-selecting. And they are all wise guys, and they have tremendous razor-sharp wit. And so all our lives, it's been a kind of contest and that, uh, that does sharpen you up in terms of your wit. And we revere wit. Wit is, is the apex of uh, human existence. To be witty, to, uh, to have a conversation <laughs> that is not ordinary. And, and I'm also, you know, an absurdist. So uh, in my village where I live now in Montecito, I walk everywhere, I know everybody. And so I love this kind of situation. You're in the supermarket, there's the, the, the lady checking you out. And it's, you know, hello, how you doing? I'm okay. How are you? I'm okay. Uh, have a nice day. You have a nice day, too. I'd love to say something preposterous, you know? And almost always people like that because it breaks the routine. About 95% of the time they like it. The 5%, you might wind up with a broken nose mm. or a black eye or something. But, you know, it's worth it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and I'm good at ducking. <laughs> <laughs> You're a little tall for ducking, I would think. But um, Well, you're... One of the main characters, perhaps the main character in Outside Looking In, which is your your sixteenth, uh, seventeenth novel, seventeenth novel, seventeenth novel, twenty eighth book. Wow, um, is a real wise guy, Timothy Leary. Um, now you mix often you mix these historical characters in with you know, whatever normal people, um, and they often all have this sort of wit or some sort of um, mercurial charisma. I mean, what what did you do? How did you find Timothy, you know, Tim Leary and turn him into into a character? Well, okay. So several questions here. Yeah, sorry. You don't know what your themes and obsessions are until you've written 28 books. Then you look back and you find out. And one of them is, as we said uh, at the outset of this conversation, is uh, these charismatic figures of the past, not necessarily, I don't care about generals and wars and stuff. I care about why we eat cornflakes. So I wrote about Dr. Kellogg, who was an autocrat uh, in his way. Or why do we have sex? I mean, we didn't even have sex before Kinsey. So I wrote about <laughs> Kinsey uh, and, uh, and Franklin Wright. And now I'm writing about Leary as the guy who sets things in motion. The main characters mm -hmm. are a couple who are, uh, the, the man anyway, is a psychology PhD student of Dr. Leary at Harvard. And, and this is all happening in the early 60s, early 60s. before uh, LSD was illegal. I mean, it was just exactly. sort of that golden mm -hmm. age, yep. if you will. Yep, yep. And uh, uh, I had written Drop City and published it in 2003. And this is my look back on the hippie era. And specifically the notion that we hippies had, that we should get off this capitalist wheel, live more simply, go back to the earth. And uh, it opens uh, up here in the Bay Area on a commune in which uh, it opens with an acid trip. And this commune then relocates to Alaska, the final frontier. So I'm talking about 
nature and sustainable living. In this particular instance, though, it's before my time. Leary, by the way, to mm-hmm. us was this preposterous figure, on the old guy on TV muttering his brain dead in a, in a togo, you know. Uh, we were in possession of the truth. We were the real deal. Um, it was so great to see him as he was then, before all this mm-hmm. happened. I mean, how did we get to Jimi Hendrix? Would there been, have been hippies if Albert Hoffman hadn't invented acid and Leary hadn't proselytized for it? I don't know. So I went back to try to find out. And um, as I see him and reveal him in this book, these, this is all uh, based on the facts of history, um, he was incredibly handsome, dynamic, 41-year-old uh, guy in 62, uh, uh, hottest professor in town, uh, had written a, a great uh, psychology book that everybody was raving about. However, <clears throat> um, I was a druggie myself, and I escaped all of that, and I'm suspicious of it. He was a naive with an addictive personality, and I don't think he understood quite what an obsession with drugs, even a drug that's not physically addictive, can be like. And I think he just unconsciously fell into this thing where he became a kind of dealer and had the dealer mentality, the guru mentality. And of course, he was uh, promoting himself uh, in order to make money and get attention and fame as well. And I always wondered, what about all of the grad students and their children Mm -hmm. and wives who lived with him and communally in Millbrook, what was that like? And so I wrote a book to find out. Well, it's interesting that you had, in your early years, had that addiction with heroin, with... Uh, um, and I did every drug imaginable. Did. I never got addicted to heroin, although I did shoot heroin. Um, uh, every drug. And uh, I wasn't looking for enlightenment or mind expansion. Uh, I was simply getting high, as we all were, and I didn't know why exactly. It was just, hey, let's get high on whatever was available, and sometimes that was LSD. So how did that stop? Was it, is it too... Um, it's a great miracle story. Yeah. In fact, let's yeah. make a movie of it. <gasps> um, yeah. No, only kidding. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so Ethan Hawke. I grew up a little bit, you know. I, 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 when I was 25, I went to graduate school. In the interim, I was in a bad scene there in New York and doing a lot of bad things that I shouldn't have been doing. But all the while, I was reading books and thinking, uh, writing, and then I started to write. And uh, I made a demarcation by getting into grad school at Iowa, the workshop. They accepted me. I said, wow, wow, great. So I put my girlfriend and my dog in the car. It wasn't that hard to find Iowa. You go on Route 80, and there it is. What year was this? Oh, wow. What year was this? 72, okay. 72. And um, I became a great student. I knew what I wanted. I had grown up. You know, so many of the people I hung out with in those days didn't have anything else. In order to be a junkie, in some sense, you have to want to be a junkie. That is, you don't care. And this is it. And before long, you're strung out. And I think it's true, too, of drugs that are not somatically addicting like the psychedelic drugs, uh, how many burnouts do we know? You know, mm-hmm. you know. On the other hand, I'm not. I don't come into a book trying to 
promote or criticize. I'm just exploring what it's like. And so, for instance, uh, this new uh, interest in psychedelics medically and for uh, mindfulness and well-being, there may well be something to that. Uh, I never experienced it myself except possibly and accidentally. So that, again, why did I stop doing all that? What happened to me? In my early 20s, I felt this tremendous power come into me, um, and confidence and power. I don't attribute it to drugs. I attributed it to just testosterone and growing into manhood. <laughs> but maybe. I don't know. Well, and the reward. <laughs> one book, another reward, another reward. Yeah. Kind of like my cat. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Though, how have you sustained that? Again, you've said, you know, 17 novels, 26 books. I mean, you've, you've sustained this so long. I believe in education, and I taught for many years at USC. I created their, uh, I started their creative writing department. Uh, I come from a working class family. I'm the first ever to go to college. We had great schools where I grew up, and I'm purely a product of public schools. Uh, I think it's wonderful to go to an undergrad school and find out what you love. You might not even know about it. Psychology, for instance. Here I'm writing about psychology students. Who would even know what it was unless you had to take Psych 101, right? So I went to SUNY Potsdam, the music school, to be a musician. I played saxophone. I could play the hell out of it. I could sight read anything. I could stand on my head and play it. Um, But I flunked my audition because I didn't get the feeling or the rhythm that we were supposed to have because they wanted us to do classical music, which I didn't know. I knew, you know, jazz and and rock and roll. So there I was, liberal arts college. What did I love? History. I always loved history, as you can see from my book. So I said, Mm -hmm. I'll be a history major. Second year, I blundered into a class of American short story, and I discovered Flannery O'Connor and John Updike and Saul Bellow and so on. And I was a double major. And finally, in my junior year, speaking of blundering in, I blundered into a creative writing classroom. So it took me a long while to kind of figure all this out. Then I had my adventures with drugs and growing up and being in dark clubs till they closed every night. And I began to think, well, you know, there's got to be something more than sitting here with these deadheads seven (laughs) nights a week, you know. And I was very fortunate to have an outlet and to get accepted in this other place that, as I said, demarcated my life. Now I'm out of here. I'm in someplace else. And uh, I'm not saying that I was a pure angel after that, but I had a purpose, and I went straight for it. One thing you um, wrote, I read your um, essay called uh, This Monkey My Back. Yeah. That's 20 years ago. It's a great essay. Great essay. Um, and you said something about writing that I think is so true. And we're, you know, we're here reporters, journalists. We're trying to, like, every day just turn it on, do our thing. But you wrote, first you have nothing, and then, astonishingly, after ripping out your brain and your heart and betraying your friends and ex-lovers <laughs> and dreaming like a zombie over the page till you can't see or hear or smell or taste, you have something. And... I don't think I've ever read anything as good about writing. And I, to me, that you know, the, 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 you know, you start with nothing, and you got to trust you end up with something. Usually, my something is not quite T.C. Boyle level, but um, but that constantly starting over from nothing. And it's an addiction uh, for me. That's why I'm comparing it to a drug high. This monkey, my back, because you get a rush mm-hmm. when you see it come together. 
it's it's ecstatic it's amazing but again the next day <laughs> you have a habit and you have to do it again and again as for that quote and the material it just clicked this in my head um so I'm a free man. I can write anything I want, and I do. I've been an artist all my life. I never had to write something on deadline or just do whatever I want. But there are two great avenues of material that I am prohibited from using. One, past girlfriends, and two, my wife's family. And that uh. is the best material, <laughs> you know. So I'm restricted. I don't know. You still have a few more novels to go. I think that, that <laughs> maybe you can cut that down. Um, I wanted to switch a little to California. Um, since you you came from Peekskill, went to, you, you know, at USC. Now you live in Montecito. And um, you wrote for The New Yorker about the going yes. through the trail, the, the trials of the Thomas Yes, Fire. of our, our tragedy last year, yeah. What is... I mean, we live here in this apocalyptical state where always crisis is always around us. Um, I'm a Californian. This is something that both attracts me and always disturbs me about the state. So did this glue you closer to that little house in the woods? Or what? how did this – what do you come away with? This is my home. This is where I live. And I love it. However, it's subject to a lot of catastrophe. For instance – We've been living in the house in Montecito for 26 years, and when we moved in, three months later was the Northridge earthquake, uh. now 70 miles south of us. It rocked the house at 4 a.m. or whenever it was like this. I jumped out of bed, and I didn't say to my wife, Doc, or it's an earthquake, or get out of bed. It's truly, I said to her, I told you we should have moved back to New York. <laughs> <laughs> um, so last year's catastrophe in Montecito, which killed 23 of my neighbors while they were asleep in the middle of the night, uh, was purely horrific. Uh, the ground zero of this was two blocks from our house, but we are on a hill, and we were not affected except for the village being taken away from us for a month. Um, the New Yorker, I don't know, a week into it, asked me if I would go and look around and write, and it was great because I could get it out of, my, <coughs> out of myself. Um, you know what? I wrote about this in the Tortilla Curtain all those years ago that the fire will be succeeded by the flood because the chaparral burns and there's nothing to hold back all the rocks. We were welcoming some rain. We'd had the drought for six years. Uh, we were looking forward to it. But it had been preceded by the Thomas Fire, which damn near burned my house down, you know, and it cast a pole of smoke over town and horrified us all. Now we felt, okay, we've survived it. And on January 9th, we went to bed welcoming rain, although they warned us that it might be severe. And it just destroyed the entire town. Uh, you know, boulders the size of this room, millions of them, like like bowling balls, just came down and washed everything out to sea, crushed everything. There's, a, you know, houses there by the creek I've looked at for all the 26 years, and there was nothing there. Nothing, not a, a brick or a bent pipe. I mean, it's, this is astonishing. And the cars were folded up like in that James Bond movie. You know, yeah. it, uh, the power of nature is extraordinary and terrifying. Did that change your feeling about staying there? It's my home. I'm more dedicated <clears throat> to it than ever. What I love about it is it's a village and I can walk everywhere I need to go. And as I said earlier, I know everybody in town. And it's uh, the essence of a village, which is so great in our urbanized, crazy, locked-behind-doors uh, kind of society. I really need and value that. And uh, a week or two after this happened, 
And what I missed most was just village life. I mean, it was mm. shut down for a month. There was nothing but cops to prevent looting. Um, it was it was a loss in, in many ways, but a loss of communal life, which I, I just really value. Well, you also wrote in that New Yorker piece that um, I'm quoting the familiar, the familiar allows me to sit at my desk day after day and reimagine the world. So having that sort of taken away, I, I thought that was an interesting contrast that as much as you've said you're sort of a free spirit and that having that sort of predictability in one's life can give you that structure. I've, uh, uh, I love to, um, you know, overhear guys at the bar complain about their second and third wife and so on, and I'll thrust in and say, yeah, well, my first wife was such a pain in the ass, I've stayed with her all these years. <laughs> Furthermore, my best friend who I just saw in New York, I've known since I was three and a half, my agent has been my agent since college. I mean, I value this in a world in which everything is so labile and everything is crazy. I really value that, and I and I value being able to clear my mind, sit at my desk, and get out of my body, outside looking in. I get out of my body by being in nature by myself, which I do a lot, and being in this dream of creating art. I Again, sitting here with you, Kitty, as my fellow writer, you know that uh, it's hard to get to work, and you, you putter around, maybe you retype what you did yesterday. At some point, though, you're gone. Mm -hmm. And when you wake up, there's something there. And it's it's just a magical experience for me. I, that's why I never um, wanted to be uh, a man of letters or give speeches or write essays, aside from occasional essays like this. I just want to do fiction because it's kind of magical. And it's something you can do forever. I mean, in the, in the um, the Monkey My Back, you talked about, you started with an episode <clears throat> or an anecdote with a friend about retiring, someone who was like 49 years old saying that he was going, he could imagine retiring. And you're thinking, well, what the hell about that? Um, I'll see him today. You will? Yeah. Has he retired? He did. Uh, and um, a little anecdote about him. Uh, I was here two or three years ago doing something, I don't know what, some, some, some gig somewhere. And uh, I had to leave the next morning to fly back at noon or something. And I said to him, well, He's, he's living up in San Rafael. I said, would you, uh, you know, want to come and have breakfast? Something. He came down, had breakfast, drove down and everything. I said, wow, this is so great you came. He said, well, i got nothing else to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have something to do. You have a few more novels to keep oh, to yeah, write. Oh, yeah. No, I uh, have just begun the next novel, and I've also written half of the next book of stories. You've seen some uh, in The New Yorker lately yes. and Harper's and, uh, I'm sorry, Esquire and, and elsewhere. Uh, I always write the stories before and after a novel because this story ideas begin to peter out and while I'm writing the novel they begin to accumulate again because you're locked into a given period in outside looking in for instance I'm locked into this period of 62 through 64 so whatever happens in society I can't really address hmm. the first of the new stories I wrote uh, used material from this catastrophe in Montecito is called I Walked Between the Raindrops, and it was in The New Yorker last July. Yeah, you read it. It's um, You read it for The New Yorker, yes, too. It was great. I love to do that. Um, every time I have a story there, they ask me to read it for for their uh, website and to, for them to air. Uh, it's very enjoyable to do that for me. So what is the next novel? What is the... Can you even talk about that? Yeah, I can't say too much because it's the very beginnings, and I've been interrupted in my work by this tour, and then I have to go back to New York in two weeks and so on. So I won't really 
be able to dig my feet in until a little late spring and summer, and I hope that when I see you next, I'll be able to have it done, but who knows? So this book is about human consciousness and how consciousness is altered by this bizarre little fungus, you know, named ergot. What does it do for us? Uh, you have a cat? I have a cat. I have a cat. My cat goes crazy for catnip. Doesn't do much for me, though. But what is it about this particular fungus and also the magic mushroom fun fungus uh, that makes psilocybin? Um, what is it that alters our brain chemistry in a way that shuts down our editing brain and allows everything else to flow in? It brings up the notion of God, too. The first and last lines of this book reference God. These you are have the last line already written? No, 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 no. No, I just go, it just work through. It okay. just... It just makes itself day by day. I don't even have an outline. It just happens. At any rate, these drugs are known, psychedelic drugs are known as entheogens. That They allow you to feel God. And I wonder about that, given the great religious texts and the religious wars and religious prohibitions and prejudices, which is all, obviously, you look at the great uh, religious texts, whether it's the Bible or the Quran or whatever, they're just basically sci-fi novels. Nobody knows. <laughs> But what if this notion of God is just a miswiring of the brain? What about that? What about the fact that we are animals that need to be in nature uh, and we never are? And uh, we have childhood. And as Wordsworth talked about, the joy of childhood when you are purely an animal in nature. Maybe that's what psychedelics do for us. They make us an, an animal again and take this crazy consciousness away from us. All that said, so I'm moving from human consciousness in the new one to animal consciousness. Mm -hmm. You know, Franz Duval has been writing about this for a long time. Carl Safina wrote a wonderful book about it a year or two ago. Um, I'm just wondering, what's the difference between our ape mentality and the mentality of other animals? Are there cats in the book? I've only got 30 pages in, but I'll throw one in for you, Please, Katie. I want to see the cat. <laughs> great. So thank you so much. This has been really enjoyable to talk. My great pleasure. Thank you um, for inviting me. Thank you. And um, I hope you come back to San Francisco and see your friends real soon. Me too. <laughs> You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to Kitty Morgan and T.C. Boyle. Our producer today is me, Peter Hartlob. Supervising producers are King Kaufman and Libby Coleman. Executive producer is Tim O'Rourke. And our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Our music is Mozart Symphony 40 in G minor by Blue Dot Sessions. Read our columns and subscribe to the Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. Chronicle podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com slash podcasts with an S.